Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Father, for the presence of the Holy Spirit that's here among us and within us. We thank you, Father, that by your Spirit and by your Word, we will be more and more conformed to the image of Christ than we ever have been before. Thank you, Father, for direction, for utterance in the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that, in, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. We've been talking about, really for the last year, what um, well, we've been talking about the end of times. We've been talking about the rapture of the church and the things that God has planned for us. It's, um, I don't know exactly why this is with me, but it seems like I get started on a track and I can't get off of it. It... Um, we know that in grammar there are run-on sentences. For me, it seems like a run-on sermon that's been going on for about a year. We have to try to dress it up a little bit differently and present it a little bit differently because it's kind of difficult to have a series with 82 tapes. But folks, I can't get away from the, the fact the reality of Jesus coming back for the church. Now notice Paul said, but of the times and the seasons, you have no need that I write to you. In other words, he's covered that with them to some extensive state that he considered to be, um, well, what? Sufficient? If you look at the book of Acts, we find out that Paul spent no more than three months at, in Thessalonica. It was one of the shortest times that he spent with any of the, the major churches of that day. And so in that period of time, those three months or maybe less, that he spent in the church at Thessalonica, he covered the situation well enough to consider them equipped. It strikes me as fascinating that Paul talked about the end of times with the church that he spent very little time with. That gets me to thinking, what was the prevailing thought or the attitude of the church, the early church, the first generation church about Jesus' return. He says that they should understand, actually he said they did understand the necessary truths 
of the rapture of the church and Jesus' return. Now, folks, the Bible talks about the mystery of Jesus' return. Jesus said himself on a couple of occasions that no man knows the day or the hour of his return. That always bugged me. Even as a child, that always bugged me. And as I've grown in God, matured in the things of God and in the knowledge of the word, it bugs me even more now than it used to. It's not because I want to know exactly when he's coming. I think we're close enough now to the end to where anybody that's got any spiritual maturity to him whatsoever is looking and preparing for his return, and rightly so. You know, in football, they have two-minute drills. In other words, they have a plan for what they're going to do in the last two minutes of the game. Now, it's not so much different from what they've done in the rest of the game, but it's a planned operation. It's a plan to score quickly. Well, I think the church should have that too. And folks, if we're not in the last two minutes of the game on God's calendar, we've got to be close. God doesn't, it's not his purpose to hide anything from man. God's the revealer. In fact, the name Jehovah, which is one of the Hebrew words that God uses as his own to describe him, he has named himself seven times, seven different names, given himself seven different names in the Old Testament to reveal who he is. God's all about revelation. When Paul prayed for the churches, the, the, um, the prayer that the Holy Ghost gave him was to pray that the church would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Jehovah is the self-existent or eternal one who reveals himself, not who hides himself away. You remember in Genesis chapter 18 when the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah came up before God and he sent his angels to deal with the wickedness of the city. God said it himself of Abraham. He said, shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? Seeing he's a covenant partner with the almighty God. God's in the revelation business, not the hiding business. Now, there's a reason that we don't know when he's coming. There's a reason that we don't know the day or the hour. And that is because we don't know when to start counting from. But that's the only reason we don't know. There's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, that told of when the Messiah would come. It says, knowing from the time of the rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, until the Messiah would be 69 weeks of years. Seven times 69 is 483 years. Add that to 457 B.C. 
when Artaxerxes gave the command to help Ezra in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That brings us to 27 AD. Well, what was 27 AD? That certainly wasn't the, the time when the Messiah was born. It's the time that he entered into his ministry. Now, the revelation that God intends for his people to have keeps us from being in the dark. Notice Paul said, as we just read, the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. God expects us to know. He expects us to have a working knowledge. And what greater thing is there to know than when Jesus is coming back? Now, folks, Jesus was working with some people that didn't pay a lot of attention to what he said, apparently. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1. Luke is the author. And he says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He's talking about the gospel of John that he's already written. Until that day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles to whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I think a lot of times we think about and have the idea that Jesus did appear after his resurrection to the disciples, but they were just short experiences. But, but Luke brings out the point, the fact that over 40 days, Jesus spent time with the, the, the apostles. These are people that saw him crucified and die. Now you tell me something. What kind of boldness would that create in someone? Not just an occasional visit. Not just a quick pop in for Jesus to say hi and then leave. But over a 40 day period for Jesus to spend time with them. Can you imagine? Well, I guess that's all we can do is imagine. But what a confidence that would put on the inside of us about the, the spirit realm, the realm that we cannot see, about the reality of spiritual truth, about the reality of the power of the name of Jesus. Now John chapter 20 tells us about when these guys first saw Jesus after he was crucified. It tells us that Jesus, they were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Pharisees coming after them and killing them just like they'd killed Jesus. And Jesus appears to them and breathes on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now when Jesus said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, if they didn't get something, then Jesus has tricked them. If they didn't receive something, then Jesus was partner to a fraud. which is a lie and which is sin. 
Therefore, when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost, they had to get something. Well, what did they get? Well, Jesus explains, whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted, and whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. It's not that they had the power to forgive sins or to withhold forgiveness from sins, but rather they had the power to lead others into salvation for the remission of their sins. So when Jesus said, receive the Holy Ghost and attaches it to the remission of sins, the information he gave them concerning the remission of sins, that has to be salvation. The Bible says that it changed their character. Where before they were behind closed doors in Luke chapter 24, verse 52, it says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were openly in the temple. They're not afraid of the Pharisees anymore. They're not afraid of being killed anymore like they were just a few days prior. The boldness that Jesus appearing brought to them was enough to change their lifestyle to make them be open in the temple worshiping and praising God. Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 1. We'll read verse 3 again. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Now I want you to notice where they're at. They're saved. They're born again. They see and have confessed, uh, certainly believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. They've confessed him as Lord. They do in this verse, in, in, in fact. So they've met the criteria for salvation. But they're still looking for the nation of Israel to be restored. After being with Jesus for three and a half years and after having seen the miracles, the signs and the wonders and the, the different things that had been done, they're still looking for a political solution. Wilt thou at this time restore the nation to Israel, the kingdom to Israel? One of the things about the Jews that, uh, that was surprising to me when I realized it, and I realized it through a, a, a rabbi friend, a friendship that I uh, developed from a guy that was living in New York, New York City. We began to correspond. I uh, responded to um, uh, something that he had posted online. And by email contact, I never met him. But through email contact, we developed somewhat of a friendship. And he taught me a lot of things, told me a lot of things that I didn't realize about the Jews. And one of the most outstanding things that, that came to my understanding was that the Jews don't care much about heaven. The concept of eternal life for the Jews has nothing, virtually nothing to do with heaven. 
Because the covenant that God made with Abraham, their forefather, was primarily a covenant that dealt with things that were here on the earth. It's hard to reach a Jew when you talk to him about heaven, the life hereafter. They can't relate to that so much. Because they're interested in the things that God promised Abraham that separated them and made them a chosen people. And that's really all about uh, all concerning God that they concern themselves with. So they asked of Jesus, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Put yourself in their position. You saw a man die on the cross. You saw things concerning his death on the cross that had never been seen before. The darkness that fell on the earth for the three-hour three period just prior to Jesus' death on the cross. You followed this guy around for three and a half years. You've seen him do miracles and then explain that he wasn't the source of the miracle power. He attributed everything that he ever did, every miracle he ever performed, every great work that ever occurred, he attributed it to an unseen power that was not of himself. There was absolutely no ego about Jesus. He didn't downplay the things that he did. He just simply said he wasn't the source of the power by which they were done. Now in Matthew 24, we've looked at that a good bit for some time. Matthew chapter 24 tells us about Jesus' prediction or revealing to them things concerning the end. Verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now if they had just asked the first thing, when shall these things be? We could accept or assume that they're concerned just about the political situation 
and the Roman rule over the people of Israel rather than them having their own nation independent of any other captivity. But then they ask some things that really go against some of what else we see in the scripture concerning their attitudes and the things that they care about. What shall be the sign of thy coming? Well, folks, Jesus can't come back if he doesn't leave the first time. So when they ask the sign of his coming, it would indicate that they believe at least momentarily in what he has told them about his crucifixion, his upcoming crucifixion and death. We also see that when Jesus did appear after his resurrection to the apostles, he upbraided them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. Because the Bible tells us previously in Matthew chapter 18, it tells us about how he told them plainly after he had asked them, who do men say that I am? You remember the story when he was at Caesarea Philippi? It, there was a place there where there was an open air temple or worship of many false gods it was kind of like an open-air strip mall for, for idolatry. And in that place, he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter answered for the group, and he said, well, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he said, who do you say I am? And then Peter responded again for the group, and he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus commends him, for his statement, he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't believe I'm the Messiah because I'm saying and I've claimed to be the Messiah. You believe that I'm the Messiah because of the things that God has witnessed to your heart about the miracles and the signs and the wonders that you've seen. It says from that time forward, Jesus began to plainly show them and teach them about his death, burial, and resurrection. It says that he plainly showed them. He began to talk to them in a different way. He indica it indicates that he pointed to everything else that he would do for the remainder of his time here on the earth as being about the crucifixion and, of course, the resurrection. Well, maybe that's why in Matthew 24 they're accepting the idea that he's going away. But if you look at John's gospel in John chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16, where Jesus spent the last Passover with his disciples, and John relates from a firsthand point of view all the things that Jesus said during that last Passover meal before he was betrayed under, into the hands of the Pharisees. Perhaps then they're catching on about his leaving. But John tells us in those three chapters that on the last night Jesus was with the disciples, that they were distraught because of his leaving. He clearly told them that he was going away. He clearly told them 
that he was coming back, but that the Holy Ghost would be given unto them because of his leaving. And everything else that Jesus had to say to them was almost rejected out of hand because of the sorrow and the grief that they felt and experienced because he said he was going away. Jesus is trying to tell them how much better it's going to be for them because they could experience salvation, the presence of God on the inside, the life of God within, and then also the Holy Ghost that would empower them to do the same works that he did himself and even greater works. And all they could focus on was the fact that he said he was leaving. What was the message to the first century church, the first generation church, about the return of Jesus? Folks, the, the pivotal point in human history was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was the pivotal point in the history of mankind. Jesus told them not to be deceived. Concerning his return, concerning the end of times, Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, or I am anointed, and shall deceive many. Verse 11 tells us about false prophets. Many, shall, many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many as well. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul tells something else to these Thessalonians, the church that he apparently spent more time talking about end time events to than anybody else. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. Now Paul starts talking about two different things, two different events. He starts talking first about encouraging them regarding the fact that we'll be gathered together unto him when Jesus comes. That's the rapture of the church. But then he goes further and he says, don't let anybody deceive you by any means, by spirit, by word, nor by letter is from us that the day of Christ is at hand. The day of Christ is the second coming of Jesus. There's a difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is when he comes back with us from the heavens with an innumerable company of angels and establishes his million year, I'm sorry, thousand year millennial reign on the earth. So he's talking about two different events. First, the rapture of the church. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together our, the rapture unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter is from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, 
for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Well, that's the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is not revealed until after the church is gone and the beginning of the tribulation has occurred. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things? So he's covered these things when during the, the three-month or less time period that he established the church. Now, would, would it be appropriate for us to think that he told those things to the Thessalonians and no, not to anybody else? Would he speak of or emphasize different doctrine to one group of people, the people of one city, than he would the people in another city when he was establishing a church there? That doesn't make sense. So if this is a guide or a pattern, then we have to accept that Paul talked at least some about the end of days and the return of Jesus. Verse 6, and now you know what withholds or hinders that he might be revealed in his time. Paul is saying there's something, there's a power that's at work in the earth that keeps the Antichrist from being revealed. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth, this word letteth is the same word withholdeth in verse 6. He who is hindering will continue his hindering until he be taken out of the way. This literally means being taken out from the middle. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause... God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned to believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So apparently Paul is saying the difference between the time when the church is gathered up by the rapture unto the Lord until those things shall come later where the Antichrist is revealed and at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus returns with the church to do battle once and for all against the enemy. He talks about deceit or deceivableness in both times. And so apparently the only difference in the deceitfulness, the deceitful work of the devil before the rapture and the deceitful work of the devil after the rapture during the tribulation is just a matter of degrees. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Something I want you to keep in mind. We know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. 
the time when Jesus in Mark 24 and Luke 21 talks about how not one stone would be left upon another. That took place in 70 AD. That was after both Paul and Peter had been martyred. They both died somewhere around 64 AD. Paul was beheaded and, Jesus, and uh, Peter was crucified. But by his own desire, he requested that he be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to accept the same kind of death as Jesus experienced. And so anything and everything that Paul and Peter wrote were before the destruction of the temple. So when they talk about the Antichrist sitting in the temple, as far as they knew, it would just be the same temple, but a different time. But imagine what happened among the people in the, the church, the first generation church, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and they recalled what Jesus said about not one stone being left upon another. I can only imagine that the church is thinking the day after the temple is destroyed, we're out of here. But there was almost 2,000 years left to go. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In other words, he's saying, remember what I taught you when I was there. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Now a lot of people will think that he's talking about the flood in Noah's day. But that's, that can't be what he's talking about. Because notice he says, but the heavens and the earth which are now. The flood in Noah's day didn't change the world. It didn't destroy the world completely. It, it didn't change the world system. This word world that's used is the word cosmos. And it means the system of the world itself. Well, nothing changed by the flood in Noah's day to affect the system of the earth. Things still grew the same after the flood as they did before the flood. The same laws of physics applied to the church or applied to the world, the earth, after the flood as before the flood. So when Peter talks about the world, the heaven and the earth which are now, he's saying that there's a different world system that's in operation in the earth today and has been since the beginning of creation. In other words, he's saying that there was something here before 
the recreation of the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Now Paul, uh, Peter talks about this in such a way as this is the elemental understanding of what God has done to create this earth. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. That word was is literally the word became. Isaiah, 55, Isaiah 45 verse 17 says that God did not create the world without form and void. It says, in the King James, it says he created it not in vain. But it's the same Hebrew words that are translated without form and void. So if God didn't create the world without form and void, how did it become without form and void? There was something that was here. There was an earth, a heaven and an earth that was different than the one we know of. And Peter talks about this like it's common knowledge. He talks about this as if everybody should understand that except those who are willingly choosing to be ignorant of it. This should be, according to the word, this should be so basic and so foundational. No controversy about it whatsoever. But we know that's not the case. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Here's another foundational truth that he's going to share with them and with us of which there should be no controversy whatsoever. Just simple fact. One day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is, is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. But is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. He can't be talking about the second coming of Jesus. He can't be talking about when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation and establishes a millennial reign. The reason for that is because we have any number of places that we could start the clock and start, know where we're starting from to identify what happens next. The tribulation is exactly seven years long. The tribulation starts with, the first day of the tribulation is identified in Ezekiel chapter 37, 38 and 39 as the coalition of armies that come down with Russia to attack Israel through the, the mountains of the north, which is through Syria. The Bible tells us that there's such an earthquake that the mountains fall upon these armies and destroy them completely and that God rains hail mingled with fire down upon them and not just upon the armies but upon the nations that supplied the armies to become part of that coalition army. They're mostly Muslim nations 
and God leaves just one-sixth of the people of those nations alive. That's about 17%. So he effectively destroys Islam in one 24-hour period. Well, once you see that army destroyed, it's exactly seven years to the end of the tribulation period. So that day couldn't come as a thief in the night against anybody. There may be people, I'm sure there will be people that are ignorant of the truth. But the truth is certainly available for them to know. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the earth, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwell, dwelleth righteousness. So Peter says some very interesting things concerning the end. And he adds some things in there that are certainly different from anything that, that Paul has taught the church. But notice again what he said in verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. He's singling something out above everything else concerning the knowledge and the understanding that we should have of the last days. One day with the Lord is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Folks, Peter tells us what is the most ancient of all doctrines concerning the end of the age, the end of days. It is spoken among the ancient rabbis of Judaism that Moses, by the information that was given to him of God, passed down information that the weeks of the earth were a type of God's dealing with mankind. Just as God established for perpetuity that seven days would make up a week in the same way he designed seven 1,000 year periods to make up his week of dealing with mankind. We know very clearly, probably more than anything else, we know what the last, the seventh day of the week is about. And that's the millennial reign of Christ where Jesus rules the earth with a rod of iron. We know that the crucifixion of Jesus was the end of the third week, the third day 
the 3,000 year period that God dealt with mankind as the generation of the Jews. And the crucifixion started the fourth thousand year period which encompassed the age of the church. Now if we knew the year that Jesus was crucified then we'd be able to, to with some degree of accuracy identify the end of days that are spoken of by Jesus. I made mention of the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 I believe it is. Where God said, revealed to Daniel. And against God, again God is the revealer, not the hider. Not the concealer. But as a revealer, he let Daniel know that from the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the Messiah would be 483 years. I think we said before that took place in 457 B B.C. 457 plus the 483 years of Daniel's 70-week prophecy comes out to 27 A.D. The time when Jesus entered his earthly ministry. The Bible says Jesus was about 30 years old when he entered into his ministry. And we know from John's gospel that Jesus spent three Passovers with his disciples. That would be the Passover of 28 A.D., 29 A.D., and 30 A.D. So when Jesus was crucified on the Passover to the day of the Passover, if we apply 2,000 years from that point in time that gets us to 2030 but we also know that the tribulation is the last seven years of that thousand year period so if our calculations are correct and we're starting from the right start date that would mean Jesus is coming back for the church somewhere around 2023. Now, do we have everything calculated just right? Probably not. But remember again and again, on several occasions, both Peter and Paul said it. There's no reason whatsoever for us to be taken unawares by Jesus' return. So he expects us to know the times and the seasons to such a degree that we have some expectation of it coming to pass before it happens. 
Folks, we may have seen our last presidential election. I sure hope so. I say that with this in mind. It's time for the church to become more than just politically minded. And if we have seen our last presidential election, then we as the church will prevail over the time when the devil stole the last one. I can live with that. How about you? But here's what it means to me more than anything else. Let me read to you from Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 beginning in verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Everything that the Bible says about the last days there is connected with it a promise of provision. Here the silver and gold is the Lord's. We've gone back and we've looked at some things that the Bible says, for example, in Psalm 34, where it tells us not to fret about the workings of evildoers. And it speaks to a lot of things that could be easily appropriated to the last days here on the earth. And there are many verses in that 34th, 34th Psalm that talk about God's provision for his people in the last days. Well, that stands to reason because you remember in Matthew 24 as well as Luke 21, where Jesus talked about plagues and famines and hardships, physical hardships. But the church is not going to be affected by those. The, the church will live above those things. So here where it talks about the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace. The latter house he's talking about is a church, not a building. It's a people who are alive unto God and led by his spirit. And when it says the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, it's talking about one of two things. It's talking either about the glory of Solomon's temple, which you remember was filled with the cloud, so that the priest could not stand and minister. 
it's talking about either the glory of God being greater than that or the glory of God being greater than the glory that was on the early church or the church in its earliest days. We sometimes talk about the early church and the modern day church like there's two different churches. And I don't want to leave that impression. But folks, remember what we talked about just a few minutes ago where Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days, coming and going, revealing to them truths about the unseen realm. And the confidence that that would have to have in, in, infected them with. The reality of the unseen realm and man's ability to minister and operate in the power of God. That's what blows my mind more than anything else the early church established or experienced. The thing that throws me, the thing that makes my mind go tilt is what would it have been like to see and hear from Jesus in those 40 days between the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. The spirit realm would have been such commonplace experience for them. That nothing could have held them back. Well, the glory of the early church began to be manifest as soon as the Holy Ghost was poured out in Acts chapter 2. And it talks about miracles happening in such a manner, in such measure, where people were just laid on the sidewalks and were healed as Peter's shadow passed over them. Folks, nobody in Jesus' day was healed by shadow. So if nothing else is available to us, at least we have one experience, one event that might qualify as a greater work than what Jesus did himself. I want you to consider something for just a moment. I want you to put yourself in their position. I want you to think of yourself and the impact that it would have on you. The impact that it would have on all of us. To experience seeing Jesus not in the flesh because he didn't have flesh. But the experience of seeing and, experiencing and interacting with Jesus in his heavenly body. Witnessing the fact that he walked through walls to enter into the closed place that they were. Interacting not so much with signs and wonders during that time. We don't really have any evidence of signs and wonders with the exception of Jesus materializing a fish out of nothing 
and preparing it for a meal for his disciples. Outside of that, we don't know of any miracles that took place in those 40 days. But as soon as the Holy Ghost is poured out on the day of Pentecost, signs and wonders and miracles begin to be happenstance, ordinary. Not ordinary in the, in the sense that they weren't to be appreciated, but ordinary in the sense that they were so abundant. Folks, that's what I believe the church is going to be in these last years before Jesus comes back for us. And I believe we have evidence here in Haggai chapter 2 to support that belief. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm looking for a wave of God's glory, a wave of God's power, an abundance of the demonstration and the presence of God himself upon the, upon the church that's never been rivaled before. Oh, that Jesus would be so real to us as if he spent 40 days with us. where we could see and feel and learn and experience the mighty hand of God. Well, what are we to say to these things? If these things are true, if just a part of these things are as we imagine them, we have one overriding work left to do. And that is to bring people into the kingdom of God. Which I believe is the purpose for all of the miracles and all of the signs and all of the wonders. Certainly that I'm expecting to come to pass. What good is a sign or a wonder if it doesn't bring somebody into the kingdom of God? Jesus said to his disciples that he had long awaited and looked forward to in a great manner the opportunity to share that last Passover with his disciples. The Passover that he explained that represented his body and his blood. The Passover that brought to pass the reality of salvation 
we're going to receive this morning those elements that still represent the body and the blood of Jesus. But folks, let's let this Passover be, or this Lord's Supper, be more meaningful to us than it ever has been before. More meaningful in the sense that we know the times and the seasons that we're in. More meaningful in the sense that we are the vessels of God's glory that he has spoken as an eternal law of God. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Let's let this Lord suffer be to us the beginning of a boldness where the things of the spirit, the unseen realm becomes commonplace to us and the power and the demonstration of God becomes second nature to us. Gentlemen, if you'll come forward.
Paul in writing to the church said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he brake it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me Father we take this bread in the name of Jesus representing recognizing that it represents his body which was broken for us your word says father that he took upon himself our infirmities and our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed so father we receive our healing with this bread this morning we receive Jesus as our healer in the mighty and holy name of your holy child let's receive the bread After the same manner also, he took his cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we take this cup, this juice that represents the blood of Jesus. We receive it unto ourselves as our sins being forgiven. But more than that, Father, we receive the gift of righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for using us, your church, to manifest your glory. We thank you, Father, for a greater glory upon your church in these last days than has ever been seen or known among mankind. Thank you, Father, that Jesus was our Passover, crucified and slain for us. Let's receive the cup. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. And let's just worship our Father for just a moment. Lord, we worship you. Father, we thank you for the great plan of redemption. We thank you, Father, that our iniquities are forgiven and our bodies are healed. Thank you, Lord. Use us. Bring people to us that need to know you. Order our steps and cause us to see and know that which can bring people into the kingdom of God. We worship you, Holy Father. And we always will. In Jesus' precious name, if you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you, folks. Have a great day.